Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We're back there again. You don't have to answer this question out loud, but uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? You know, I, I am pretty much a standard person, uh, and I'm guessing most of you, it's the same thing pretty much every morning. You get up, and uh, for some of you, it's to get the coffee started or the hot water started for tea, uh, and uh, you might have fruit, or you might have, uh, you know, if you're really uh, going out of your way, you'll have some sort of eggs and, and uh, bacon and perhaps some sort of bread and that type of thing. But uh, for a lot of people, the standard is just having cereal. You go, why? Because it's easy. Uh, it's there. You pour it out and you pour it in, uh, some milk on there. Some uh, people don't. They eat it dry and whatever, and uh, they enjoy cereal. In fact, if you think about cereal, the, the name of the company that typically comes to mind is the name Kellogg's. It's located in Battle Creek, Michigan, but most of us don't know the story behind uh, how you ended up with the Kellogg's cereal brand company. Back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a man by the name of John Kellogg. And John Kellogg uh, was a known doctor. Uh, he was probably one of the well, a doctor that we would call today one of the naturalists or the herbalists or these type of things. He, he used some unconventional methods uh, to try and, and get people feeling better. Uh, he uh, was, by 1904, a best-selling author in the United States, and people came and read his books. They came to his uh, sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, and there was a hotel there, and you had famous individuals like Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and Amelia Earhart and individuals like that that would come and stay uh, at the spa that was there because uh, they would feel so much better. And one of the things that uh, Kellogg's, uh, John Kellogg pushed was the idea of getting people on a whole grain diet. And uh, he wanted them to do that. And for many years, he tried to come up with a formula that uh, would be good uh, for some sort of cereal in the morning and tried a whole bunch of wheat combinations, and it wasn't working very well. And he finally was able to get corns to, uh, corn to be able to flake and this, and he suddenly had a, a breakfast cereal that was fair, or, or breakfast that was fairly popular. But the rest of the story is this, is that John had a younger brother, he was eight years older, uh, by the name of Will. Will worked for his brother for a number of years, uh, and he was kind of the chief of staff of uh, all the operations, but he didn't have an official title. In fact, uh, it uh, was uh, a regular thing for uh, the older brother John, the doctor, to uh, bully his brother. He paid him poorly. Uh, he bullied his brother with words and in public and the like. But when this idea finally came up of this idea of cereal, Will had had enough of working for his brother, and so he went out and started his own company, named it Kellogg's, and he started selling cereal. And immediately it took off uh, across the country that people were buying Kellogg's cereal. John, the doctor, was upset by this because he felt like maybe his brother had stolen his idea, but uh, his brother was just merely taking the idea and promoting it on a large scale. The siblings went to court, sadly. 
in a public court case where they had all sorts of things that they laid out for everybody to see uh, as far as how much they didn't like one another. Uh, they basically uh, became uh, a public story of people who were siblings and could not get along. You had a family that was ripped apart in public. Eventually, as the court uh, went and looked at some different things and uh, came to their decision, Will, the younger brother, was the one who was able to keep the Kellogg cereal brand name and uh, thus became uh, very wealthy. Never again did the brothers ever get together. The doctor uh, seemingly tried to, but Will had had enough. And by the time John died in 1943, uh, they had just had another bitter argument. You say, that's sad. It's on a, a public scale that uh, you have a sibling rivalry uh, take place. But here you have in John, or Genesis chapter 37, a sibling rivalry that we have recorded and has been around for the last 3,500 years, recorded for us. And, and it might be as you read the Scriptures, you go, why in the world do we have a story like this in our Scripture? I mean, why don't we talk about good things? Why don't we have something that talks about God and, and what he's like uh, and that? But what you have is just a study in human character. What we're like, what we can be like if we allow sin to go unchecked. And what you find in this section is more dealing with human nature and what we can simply see in this family that's unraveling. I mean, all you got to do with a certain, material, certain materials is just to pull one string and everything starts to fall apart. Well, what you have here is this family is just completely torn apart. What you see in this passage is just simply this, is that hatred and envy can bring destruction to the closest family ties. We kind of started this process of looking at this last week, uh, but uh, it uh, is once again emphasized in the section that hatred and envy can bring destruction to the closest of family ties. Now, it's not always obvious that there is hatred and envy going on. You go, why is that? Because it's something that starts in the soul. It's hidden. It's not that it just suddenly happens and comes out. It's something that stirs in the soul. And as you look at this story that we read through this morning in Genesis 37, uh, you, you find out that there's a certain individual that's not quite realizing that there's hatred and envy going on. He's not seeing it. Because it's something that's an emotion inside other individuals. You go, who's the person not seeing it? It's Jacob. Jacob, the dad's not quite seeing that the brothers uh, are not getting along, that the ten brothers, and I kind of exclude Benjamin from this because Benjamin's the youngest and he doesn't seem to be part of the older brothers uh, going on here. But you have these, uh, excuse me, yeah, the, the ten brothers who are not getting along with uh, Joseph. They hate him. In fact, in verse number four, it said this, that they can't even speak peaceably to him. They can't speak peace. They can't say shalom to him. They can't be kind to him in the least uh, of the common things in life. Uh, just to give him a nice greeting. They can't do that. They can't speak peaceably to him. 
But in the story that we have here, Jacob sends Joseph out. The, the ten brothers are out working in the field, and ironically, they're, they're working near a city called Shechem. And for you, you ought to go, what are they doing near Shechem? I mean, just two chapters before, they're running from Shechem. You go, why? Because Simeon and Levi wiped out part of the village. He killed Hamar and Shechem that lived there and their family and some of the people in the town that were there. He killed them. They killed them off. But yet here the brothers are going to Shechem. And Jacob goes, okay, what I want to do is this, is that I'm going to send the son that I love the most. I've given him this special robe, this coat. It's called the coat of many colors. It's probably a a long-sleeved garment that most people didn't wear because you didn't want to wear it because it would get caught in things and be in the way. And uh, workers typically didn't wear long-sleeved outfits. In fact, rulers were the only ones that did. He sends his son out and he sends them to find out in verse number uh, 12, or 13, that he wants to send Joseph and find out what's going on and then he says this in verse 14 go i pray thee and see whether it be well uh the idea there is the word that are they peaceable at peace okay that's the idea of the word well there it's the same word shalom that type of thing go out and find out if they're at peace even though the brothers are ones who can't be at peace with their brother dad hasn't figured this out yet because they've kind of concealed this from him What's been going on? Dad's willing to send uh, Joseph to a risky location of why he would send his favorite son to Shechem when the last time they were running from Shechem because they were afraid. But he's willing to do this. And you just kind of go, well, why is he not aware of these things? Because these things go unchecked sometimes. They go in the human heart. Hatred and envy can be hidden for years bitterness can stew in the soul and can be like this and dad's not seeing this but he's willing to send joseph to go check out the other brothers see what they're doing and the irony of the story is is that when joseph gets to the location where his brothers are supposed to be at he can't find them but there's a kind i mean this is kind of ironic you've got a kind gentleman from the city of shechem that finds Joseph. And he goes, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for my brothers. He goes, oh, I just happened to hear a conversation with them. And they said they were going to Dothan. Now, this is quite uh, the task that Joseph's been given because I haven't given you any measurements yet as how far uh, Hebron is from Shechem. Just the first journey that Jacob would have taken to go find his brothers would have been a trip of 50 miles on foot. Now here this kind gentleman, which is ironic because Joseph is safer with this man than he's going to be with his brothers. This man goes, I heard they went to Dothan. You go, where's that? It's another 13 miles northwest of the location of Shechem. And Joseph could have just gone out of the way and said, well, or stopped right there and just said, I'm not going any further. But he completes his dad's task. He goes and he finds the brothers. But this first part just indicates the fact that it's not really out in the open jacob doesn't understand these brothers really hate joseph and he's not really going to understand it for years because he's going to at the end of the story just think that joseph died in some accident 
but yet these brothers have been hiding it this whole time. But you get to verse 19 to 35 and you see this, that hatred and envy will move individuals to commit cruel acts. Allowed to go unchecked, hatred, envy, and bitterness will cause people to do things that they would have never imagined that they'd be willing to do, but they've allowed it to stew in their soul, and it suddenly comes out in action, what's hidden in the heart. Sin always starts in the heart, and it goes into actions otherwise. I mean, you see the story in verse number 19, and it starts this way, uh, or we go back to verse 18, and says this, and when they saw him afar off, He's you know, coming over the hill and they see this individual as they're sitting there tending the flocks and they immediately can tell who he is. You go, why? Because he's got this outfit that no one else has. And they see him off in the distance and they all immediately say this, or decide this, that even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. I mean, just the sight of him. causes them to rage and they suggest the fact maybe we should just kill him off i mean that's how deep the rage and hatred had gotten into their heart i mean what we see here is the fact that sin does not lie far from a heart that is filled with hatred and envy and bitterness it'll play out and sometimes in violent fashion I was reading the story, I was reminded of a story we read earlier in the book of Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 4. You have a story of two brothers there, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, uh, two brothers that had equal opportunity before God, and God said, I want you to bring a sacrifice, and they bring a sacrifice, and Abel brings a, a, an animal sacrifice uh, like what was required. Uh, Cain brings one that's of the, the crops that he had. And he's probably not offering it in faith. But whatever the case is, God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice. He makes it obvious that he's happy with it. And then God comes to Cain and it's obvious that Cain's upset and angry and mad and envious that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and not his. And God's statement to Cain at that point is this, you need to beware because sin, and he uses a term like an animal, sin crouches at the door. If you ever had an animal in your house, like a cat or something like this, you've seen them as they get down on the ground and they're getting ready to pounce on something. That's how God describes it when we are allowing hatred and envy to run in our souls towards somebody. He says, you better watch out because sin's suddenly going to pounce. You're going to do something you're going to regret for years. And it's just going to pour out of you because you've allowed sin hatred, envy, and bitterness to run free in your soul, unchecked. I mean, these brothers, as soon as they see him, the first thing out of their mouth is, let's kill him. I mean, their statement is this, is that they're, they're mad about the fact, as you look in, in verse uh, number 19, they said to one another, behold, this dreamer cometh. 
That word dreamer is a bigger term than what's actually there. They're making the statement that he is the Lord of dreams. The word is Baal of dreams. Uh, Baal was a god that we're familiar with in the Old Testament, and that was just another name for their Lord. But this is common language for Lord and Master. And they're just simply saying this. This is one who supposedly is the master of dreams. He's the Lord of dreams. Look, there he is. Well, let's see what happens to his dreams. I mean, that is the question. Verse number 20, Come now, therefore, let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say, Some evil beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And they're questioning what God has already stated, and they're going, Well, we'll see if this is really true. I mean, they're willing to murder him cruelly, and they're willing to do this, but I don't even know how to describe this. It's a, an individual who is uh, politically trying to gain something is suggesting something a little less cruel. Because you have in verse number 21, Reuben steps in. You go, well, who's Reuben? Reuben's the oldest of the brothers. He's the one who's supposed to be in charge. But we've already seen that he has politically tried to gain a position in the family by sleeping with his father's concubine and has done this. And so he's kind of already out of the graces of Jacob, but he's probably thinking, maybe I can do something to instill you know, something with my father. I've got to give answer to him because I'm the oldest. You know, if you're the oldest in the family, you understand this. You're always the one who has to answer for what went on. You know, why did this go on? Why does the house look like this? Uh, and you talk to his parent, the first child, the oldest. And Reuben kind of recognizes, uh, okay, well, I'm going to have to answer to dad. So what I'm going to do is this. Let me suggest, verse 22, let's not shed blood, but cast him into some pit. And you go, why did they have a pit readily available? Well, understand, you're in the Middle East. This is called a cistern, uh, what they would have had. They're all over the place in that region because what you're trying to do is collect water. It only rains four months out of a year, out of the year in that region of the world. And if you're in the middle of nowhere, you want to be able to access water. And so what they would have is basins that were sometimes six feet to 20 feet deep that were caked in lime. And so they were solid walls that would be able to contain water that would pour into this. And he simply suggests, well, there's a pit over there. Let's just take Joseph and throw him in there. You know, he's kind of saying, let's not kill him off. Let's be kind to him a little bit uh, here. Let him die a lengthy death. That's kind of what he's suggesting. Not an immediate death. Let's have him die a lengthy death and let's put him in this pit. Now, he's politically calculating because he's going this. I can come back later and pick him up and bring him back to dad. And dad will be happy with me. So we go from murdering cruelly to maybe, well, murdering him not so cruelly, just cast him into the pit. You say, well, what happens? Well, they're sitting here, and as you find this, they strip him of this coat. They took him, verse 24, cast him in the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. 
I mean, you think about just the casualness of this. They've just uh, plotted to murder their brother. They throw him in a pit thinking that he's going to die there. But we know from later on in Genesis chapter 42, 20 years later, they still remember the fact that he's crying out of that pit as they ate their food. And they eat it. Uncaring for human uh, cries of their brother. Uh, There's no humanity or compassion in them at all uh, for him. And they just sit there and they eat a meal. You know, humanity can be that way towards other humans. I remember an individual that uh, is a young man I heard a lot about when I was at Market Manor Baptist Church. A man by the name of George Mensick. He was part of the mob uh, in the early 20s and 30s. was known for his uh, being a part of some of the things that went on with Al Capone and other individuals like that. And it was never pleasant what they did. I'm always amazed at how much they get glorified. Uh, these gangsters, they were just cruel individuals. George Mensick got saved as his wife and daughter started going to church in the 30s and they got saved and eventually because of their testimony, he ended up showing up in a church service one day. Came back home after the morning service and was angry with his wife going, what did you tell the preacher about me? He seemed like he was preaching about me in that service. And, and she's like, I didn't say a word to him. And he goes, well, I better check this out. And he went back in the evening service and uh, the preacher was there again and preached again and caught him as he went out the door and just said, you know, we need to talk. And George Mensah came to know the Lord. But the statement that George Mensick made was that when I was uh, younger, I could be cruel before I got saved. He goes, I remember eating ice cream as we tortured individuals, and we would just sit there and eat ice cream as they were being tortured. He goes, now that I'm saved, he goes, here's the problem. He goes, I can't even see the sight of blood without getting queasy. And for him, it changed his life. He became an individual who was a missionary to prisoners in the city of Chicago. In fact, the the, the police department just erased his record after about a two to three year time, realizing he was a completely different man and allowed him to go to talk to prisoners and, and was a missionary to prisoners for years in the city of Chicago. I mean, these brothers are, are like those mobsters who could eat ice cream and be okay while someone else suffers cruelly. I mean, that's how far these brothers have degraded themselves. You get to the end here, and verse 25, they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes, and looked, behold, a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spice and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah... Here's this brother that we're going to look at in great detail in two weeks whole chapter dedicated to him but uh, what we're going to see is there's going to be a change in his life he's eventually going to become a leader that you would want but at this point he's filled with hatred he's filled with envy he doesn't like his brother and he is a manipulative selfish individual and what he's thinking is this as he sees those slave traders go by hey wait we can still get rid of our brother and we can make a profit off of him 
We can still make money off them. We can get rid of them. So why don't we, as these individuals are going down to Egypt, we're not going to Egypt. We've never been to Egypt as a family. We don't plan to go there for any trips or anything like that. We'll never see him again because probably when he's a slave, he'll just die off in some field somewhere uh, working under the hand of some cruel torturer down there and uh, he'll just die. So let's make profit off of him. And so they talk to these Ishmaelites. Now, as you read the story here, you go, Ishmaelites. You go, this, these are descendants of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. And in some places in the story, they're called Midianites. You go, wait a second, how can they be Midianites and Ishmaelites? Well, remember, uh, Midian was a descendant of Abraham too. We forget the story that Abraham had a wife by the name of Keturah after Sarah died had multiple sons through that and one of them uh, was Midian so you have these Ishmaelites and Midianites who come from Arabia that's the region they were living in they're doing trade and business in Egypt which was at that time one of the greatest places in the world as far as what was going on it was the center of world uh, events and politics and they're going down there to do business and they just happen to be passing by and they you have these brothers that are going here we have this individual who's a slave that we just want to kind of want to sell him off he's kind of unruly we've got him in the pit over there don't believe anything he says and the deal's made for 20 pieces of silver and they sell their brother off you kind of go that's really horrible that they would be able to have that kind of attitude and non-humanity if you want to put it that way to be able to do this and i just want to stop here for for a moment and and just think through this passage and this section for application to ourselves i want you to keep a a bookmark here in genesis 37 because we're going to come back here but i want us to turn to ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians chapter 4, that's in the New Testament. One of Paul's letters there that he wrote. But in Ephesians chapter 4, you have a passage where the Apostle Paul is talking about the fact that when you get saved, you shouldn't live like you used to. There ought to be a difference, a change of life. And you go, it's because I'm working really hard at this. No, it's because you have the Spirit of God with you. God's dwelling in you. He's helping you do what you need to do now that you couldn't do before you were saved. But in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, you have not so learned Christ. Okay, You're not supposed to be sinning like you used to. If you, verse 21, if so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man or we'd say this the former lifestyle i think some of you ladies in sunday school this morning had a lesson about putting on and putting off the idea here is that when you get saved there are certain things that you realize wait a second that's a part of the old life that's a part of if i was a person that had no morals and i had uh, no standards and i had no law of god and i just did what i wanted to do and write in my own eyes that there are certain things like a garment that I will put off, I'll take off and not leave them on. I'll put off the old lifestyle. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Do you realize there it's saying this, that all sin starts where? 
in your mind. So what do you need to do? Change your thinking. Not only just go, okay, there's certain things I need to do now because I'm told this. No, you're changing the way you think. You're renewed in your mind. You go, how am I renewed in your mind? Because you're reading what God says. The Holy Spirit's able to take the Word, which is the sword of the Spirit, and change you. And then you find this as you read this, that you then put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You ought to look different. There's this conscious thing. Sins, bad, put it off. And I have this thinking where I'm going, I've got to change the way I think about things because the way I think affects the way I act. And I need to put on those things which God says, this is what a follower of me looks like. So Paul then goes in Ephesians chapter 4 and gives a number of examples of what this looks like. I mean, what does it look like when a person gets saved and they change from the old life to the new life? I mean, let's just look at verse 25. It says this, Wherefore, put away lying. You know, why do we lie? Because we like to make ourselves look better. The person who saves realized, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're saved sinners. But lying, what does lying do? Lying protects our, 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 our persona and who we are. Uh, but the Lord says this, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Or how about this? Be angry. You're like, okay, I'll take that one. Okay, but you realize the next statement, be angry and sin not. There are certain things to be righteously upset about. Things that are not right. But he says this, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. If you're angry with somebody, put it aside. Go make it right. You go, why? Because you allow it to stew. It's going to be something worse. It's going to come out later. And, and let's just go down, down, down to verse 31. Here's the passage I want us to look at. The Apostle Paul says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, you go, what's that, fighting? And evil speaking be put away from you along with malice. You go, what's that? A fancy word for hatred. Put that aside. You need to go, if I have this in my soul, this is something I need by the grace of God to lay aside. Put this aside. Go, that's not the right course of action. I don't need to be thinking like this. I don't need to be going down that line. But you go, what's the, what's the new way to think about things? Well, it's this way. Verse 32, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. You look at those brothers, they aren't tenderhearted at all. As cruel as anybody. But they've allowed anger to be a part of their life. They're not tenderhearted. They're not forgiving one another. And then this idea, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, why should you forgive others when they offend you and they upset you? Because God was willing to forgive a big problem you go what's that that you sinned against an eternal god a god who said you are supposed to be like this and we said we'll go our own way we're fine and god through his son was willing to forgive you so i would be willing to forgive others who are not kind to me or offend me or say things that i'm not really happy with uh, should i do that and the answer is absolutely 
See, what you have here with his brothers is a study when a person does not put off the wrong thoughts and the wrong attitudes, they're going to give themselves away to sin. They'll do certain things that they regret. But a person who is a believer, who is a follower of God, goes, there are certain things that aren't right. That's the old life. I'm going to put that aside. I'm going to renew my mind. I'm going to think like what God wants me to think like. His thoughts, His words are what should fill my mind as far as my activities and my, my, my doings. And in the long run, what happens is that I'm putting on Christ. I'm looking like Him, doing the things that He's doing, not reflecting the old life. These young men, as you read the story, they fail in this. But Paul has to, who's he writing to here? He's writing to believers. We can fail just like unbelievers. If we give place, we allow the garment of anger and bitterness and these type of things to be a part of our life and we just let it stew, it's going to lead to something that we don't want. Sin beyond our imagination that we would be capable of. But a believer is doing this, recognizing that sin, thinking that that's wrong. And putting it aside and saying, what would reflect Christ? What would be the opposite of how I would react in my sinful flesh? What's the opposite of that that would reflect the character of God? These boys, going back to Genesis chapter 37, these are ones who have rejected what God has said. I mean, that, that is really the issue here. I mean, you hear it out of their mouth. Let's see what happens if the dreams of this dreamer really do come true. What are they saying? Well, let's see if what God said really happens. And then they're willing to continue their hatred. And you just you, you continue and follow this out, and you read uh, the story. Reuben comes back. He's looking for his brother there in verse 29. His brother's not there, and he's just like, you know, now what are we going to do? And they come up with this concoction of a story. They still have Joseph's garment and they say this, okay, well, let's tear up the garment, go and kill one of the animals that we have, pour the blood on it, and then come back to dad and say, see, look, we found Joseph's garment and it's got blood all over it. It looks like a wild animal got it, uh, and we're so sorry. Fake grief. And when they come back with this story and they tell dad about this, they can't even speak peaceably about Joseph. You read verse 32 at the end, it says this, This we have found, know now, excuse me, know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. They don't even say, it, it looks like our brother's coat. No, they're just like, okay, dad, this is your favorite. Is this your son's coat? I mean, you still see the, the hatred that the brothers have for Joseph. Can't even speak as a, a, a relative of theirs. Jacob acknowledges this. And I will say this, there's the irony of this, that Joseph, or excuse me, that Jacob is deceived by a coat. Remember what Jacob had done years before to his dad? He had a skin uh, of goats made so that when he went into his blind father, his dad would reach out and, and touch the arms and, and go, oh, you are Esau, I'll give you the blessing. He deceived his own dad by a coat. Here are these brothers, end of life. Here Jacob is suffering what he had done so many years before. His brothers deceive him with a covering of a coat. You find that it breaks him. 
verse 35, and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. wonder how that went. Dad, we're so sorry he died. I mean, they're lying to him, probably going back and snickering about the fact that they've gotten rid of Joseph. And you kind of go, okay, well, that's how the story ends. For many of us, as we read this, we, are, we already know where we're going in the story, okay? We've read the story, we've heard the story of Joseph in some way, shape, or form. We kind of know where this is going. But you read the story and you're just kind of like, okay, he's been sold off into slavery, dad's been deceived, not a very good end. But I want to just give you the last verse and why it's there, because this last verse is given, and then we talk about a story of Judah for the next umpteen verses. You read verse 36, and it just adds this little statement. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's, and captain of the guard. Can I make this statement? Hatred and envy can be counteracted by the providence of God. The results of people hating you and are bitter towards you, that God can counteract it in ways that you can't even imagine, that God can do something uh, with something that the world would look at and go, what a great tragedy. God's able to do something different. Because when you read this story, it's just one verse that's there. But it's telling us this. Joseph does get down to Egypt, but do you know this? He's entered into, we would say this, the courts of power. He didn't get sold off to be some farm laborer with thousands of other people working on some sort of plot down in Egypt. No, he happens to be bought by an individual who is the captain of the guard. You go, what's that? He's the one responsible for the security of the nation, specifically the security of the pharaoh. Okay, a person like that is not just some government bureaucrat or anything like this. This is a man who's in power. You have to trust an individual like this. He doesn't get a position of authority like this if he's untrustworthy. And here you have this man by the name of Potiphar, who's captain of the guard, who brings in Joseph to work in his house. I mean, this is the start of what's going to take another 20 years or at least 17 years. Wait, 13 years, excuse me. 13 years before Joseph is actually second in command in Egypt. But this is the start of it. And you go, how did this happen? How did Joseph end up in the slave market at the time where Potiphar is going through and picking up individuals to work in his household? How, 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 you know, this is, and we would say this, what a set of fortunate circumstances. That's how we look at things. You're going, no, this is the providence of God. God has Joseph right where he needs him to be at. In fact, uh, one uh, author, when he talks about uh, the fact that Joseph is moved uh, from where he's at in the pit to these slave traders to go to Egypt, he just calls it this. It's providential relocation. He's been providentially relocated to where God needs him to be at. And despite what his brothers are trying to do, he's never going to rule over us in this. God just takes the circumstances and moves him to a place where he's eventually going to be the one who's in charge of the land of Egypt. And in that culture, he's in charge of the 
world. The governing of it. And that's what that one verse is giving us. We're, if you hadn't read the story yet, you're kind of going, oh, okay, so he lands in, he lands in a government official's house. But this is the providence of God setting us up for what we're going to find in the rest of this story, that God's hidden hand is in charge. And God can take care of you despite the hatred of family and friends. Do we believe that? That God can take care of us uh, in these things. When we close here with this sermon, we're going to sing, once we get done here, Be still my soul. You know what the statement says right on that, after that? Be still my soul. The Lord is on your side. Reminds me of Romans chapter 8 for believers, uh, people who are followers of God. Uh, the statement and the sentiment is this, if God be for us, who can be against us what can separate us from the love of god nothing because god's on our side who's going who's going to accuse us of anything nobody because we have god as our god uh and then you go through that listing at the end of romans chapter 8 and you're like death and sickness and all of these bad things are happening is this going to separate us from god the answer is no none of those things So as you read the story, understand the evilness of hatred and envy. You can't allow that to stir in your souls. And if you have someone this morning that you can't think peaceably about, you know, if I was to have a screen of pictures of people up here and I was just to, you know, flash the pictures of people up there and all of a sudden, you know, a picture of a person comes up and you're like, in your soul. Beware. Okay, you, you might do some things that you would never do otherwise because you're allowing hatred and envy and bitterness to have a uh, root in your life. And you may do things that you would wish you'd never done afterwards. You need to get it out of your soul. But on the other side of this, understand if you're the one suffering from the hatred and envy and bitterness of individuals, God has not abandoned you. God's there with you, and it may be that God is getting you to the point where you need to be at to be able to accomplish purposes beyond what you could ever imagine in your life that you would be able to accomplish for God. He's just getting there, you there. A providential relocation. He's getting you to where you need to be at to accomplish His purposes, to accomplish the things He needs to be done. And so it ought to be this, be still my soul. I ought to be settled in soul no matter what happens to me and at the hands of whom God will get me to where I need to be at. So praise the Lord for if you know Christ, you're safe. Even in the times where you may be hated by those that were closest to you, God will take care of you. Lord, we thank you for your word. A story like this where you're not very much seen in the whole story other than the fact that you get Joseph exactly where you need him at. Lord, there may be Christians here today that are struggling with bitterness and hatred and envy, jealousy, 
of other individuals. They, they can't think peaceably about those individuals. They can't think good thoughts about them. They stew on the fact of what these people uh, are like and what advantages they have. Lord, help believers this morning to recognize if they hold on to those things, they keep that garment on of hatred and bitterness, anger, envy, that it will eventually play out in sin that will be destructive to themselves and to others. That they need to put on a Christ that is one who is kind to people who are unkind. That is gentle with people who are, well, not gentle. And is forgiving of people who at times are not deserving of forgiveness at all. That they would reflect Christ in that way. That they would show Christ that way. Those things are not things that have dire consequences. But those are things that oftentimes can reap great reward great benefit to others when individuals reflect Christ in their life. Lord, we pray for those that may be undergoing just difficulty at the hands of other individuals. Things that they have no reason why they're undergoing those things, but individuals have decided that they're going to make life difficult, hard, harsh. May you be with your believers today that help them to recognize that in this story, you got Joseph where he needed to be at, and it was at the hands of cruel individuals that he got to where he needed to be at. And it may be that in your providence, you're just using individuals in the lives of believers here to get them to the point where they are able to do and accomplish things for you that they would never be able to do otherwise. May we see your hand at work in our lives behind the scenes. That you're a good God, that you'll never separate from us, you'll never abandon us. And that we should be individuals who are calm in the storm that we may be going through. Recognizing that we've got a good God who's caring for us every step of the way. We love you, Lord. Thank you for sending your son to save us, to rescue us. But we're also thankful for the fact of the, the encouragement he gives throughout life and the blessing of knowing you, the one true God. And we thank you and praise you in the name of your son. Amen.